travelers, learners, and explorers. I'm Georgia Ellis, and thank you for tuning in to the Alice in Wonderland podcast. Today, I'm joined by Greg Collier. So Greg is an experienced people leader. I know this because um, I've been one of the people he's led in the past. He's a business manager, facilitator, coach. He's also an MC, a narrator, and a consultant. And a lot of his work, he has lots of little diverse areas that he works in and his work is centred around organisational development, uh, innovation, human-centred design, product development, culture, change management, strategy, generational diversity, virtual teams and agile delivery. So there's a lot in there and I'm not sure how much we're going to get to today. So let's get curious and welcome Greg. Georgia, uh, it's interesting hearing all of that because, wow, I sound really clever, don't I? But uh, <laughs> it's been quite a journey to, um, to put some of those little sentences into uh, my CV and into my little backpack. And uh, really looking forward to a, a bit of a tour uh, around uh, Wonderland with you as well. Yeah, beautiful. So let's get into it. One of the questions I ask my um, guests, oh, I've changed it up a little bit recently, actually. So there's a question I like to ask to kick things off. And I want you to imagine... Actually, I'm going to ask you the question I used to ask people. I think it's really relevant for you. I want you to imagine that I'm a seven-year-old Alice, wandering my way, playing and skipping my way through Wonderland, and I bump into you, Greg. And I look at you and I say, Mr. Collier, what do you do in Wonderland? What is it that you do? How would you describe what you do to a seven-year-old girl? I'm quite envious of you as a seven-year-old girl because the curiosity that you have as you explore that world is something that I try to embrace. And uh, I'm just looking around kind of the same way that you're uh, looking around as well and exploring things. And I'm a curious kind of cat. I just like to look around and see what I can discover and see what I can notice. And when I think I know what I'm looking at, I like to look at it from a bit of a different angle to see, am I really seeing that or... Am I seeing something that I've seen before and trying to recognise it from a past experience? And uh, that can be quite challenging uh, after my 53 years on the planet. And, uh, yeah, I've seen a, seen a few things and I've travelled a lot and a lot of things seem familiar. But, you know, the familiar is a bit tricky. Now, if I had that response to a seven-year-old uh, Alice in Wonderland, uh, I'd probably confuse you. But uh, uh, it would be around just travelling and looking at things and exploring things and picking things up and seeing how they work. And I'm curious. I, I love seeing what things do and how they work and how they interact with, with things. So I guess I'm an explorer. Beautiful. Awesome. So being an explorer and you've done all this exploring at the moment, by the way, I'm not a seven-year-old Alice anymore. Uh, I'm Georgia. What excites you the most about the world we're living in today? Uh, seeing people navigate through it and 
seeing how they take their past and lived experience and apply it to the world that is so different to what it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 days ago, one day ago, 10 minutes ago. And, and seeing how that uh, shapes kind of the world that they're experiencing and the impact that they choose to have on the world or perhaps the impact that the world then has on them and how they cope um, with that impact and how the world copes with the impact that they have as well. So it's just the, the times that we're in at the moment, it excites you just seeing people sort of, do you, are you finding people are levelling up? Levelling up, oh, I love that term. Uh, I think complexity is emerging and the world is more complex and I think that is happening because we're up for that. Mm. We're, we're creating this complexity because as living beings, we're up for bigger problems and bigger challenges, uh, more so than, you know, than the previous versions of, our, of ourselves. And so I think we're being confronted with more information and more technology and more problems than perhaps ever before. Um, and, and I think that's on purpose. I think we've created that so that we've got some really big, hairy problems to solve. I love what you say there about complexity because I, I'm actually reading some of Keegan's work. So Keegan's out of Harvard. He's done, I see you nodding. Um, he's done quite a bit of work around the adult development. And he, he talks about the different types of minds that we have and the more complex we are in our thinking, the more complex, more complexity in our mind is the better we're going to be at solving, solving problems, you know, solving these wicked problems that the world seems to be creating through that complexity at the same time. So I love that you've said that. Um, and he talks about, I don't know if you've heard the terms he talks about, and I think there's a bit of Jane Lovinger's work in here as well, where they talk about um, the conformist mind. So that's, you know, living from, the way I've always lived basically and just conforming to what I've been giving and thinking the world can't really change into um, so there's the conformist mind then there's the self-authoring mind which is someone who starts to get a little bit more creative and they start to think for themselves and he calls the whole the holy grail the self um, transforming mind which means we, we become a chameleon we mm. can transform we become curious and we can move around uh, in the world quite differently we have a higher level of um, perspective as well we can see things differently and before we started recording we were actually having some really good conversations about some of the things that are piquing your interest at the moment mm. and I think I think some of that was around the um, the, the points of view we had ourselves and you used a term and I'm gonna see if I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna do this justice was it solipsistic? Solip 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 <laughs> yeah, so being solipsistic. Solipsistic. Um, yeah, or, or, or the concept of solipsism. Yep. Which is this idea that uh, I am me and that's the only thing that I really know exists. Yep. Uh, and that the, the world perhaps exists outside of me, but at least I know it exists within me. It kind of gets into the matrix a little bit, doesn't it? But, yeah. but uh, just on that, that's another yeah. level that Keegan talks about. And that's the level before the conforming mind. It's, I can't remember what he calls it, but it's basically, it's just, I, I'm only about my, my own needs and I only know what I know sort of mm. thing. That's very similar to that. So can you unpack what that a little bit further for our listeners? Yeah. So uh, if you think of a child um, as they're brought into the world, a baby human, there's a, there's a while there that, uh, I think only they know that they exist and 
and their whole life is around how do I survive as a little human being without any awareness really that other people exist around me. I'm the centre of my whole of my whole universe. And then across stages of human development, I think they then step into this awareness that actually someone else exists and other people exist as well. And so I'm part of a wider system. Uh, and, and so navigating through that wider system uh, is complex. And, and I watch, I'm blessed with having a couple of grandkids and I watch, I watch my 11 month old grandson as he na navigates his world and he can actually see something kind of maybe it's four metres away from him and it's at a different height. And through his behaviour, he can use the people around him as warm scaffolds and go from person to person to person. And, and being part of that system, you think, oh, he just wants a cuddle from me, but no, he's actually using me as a stepping stone to get from me to the next person to the next person to the next person so that he can get the thing that he's noticed on his on his bench or you know in the distance. And... And so that awareness that other people exist is, is you know, so complex because once you then develop into, say, childhood and then into adulthood, uh, then you start to get involved with other humans and you start to develop human relationships. And in doing that, I think you then get propelled or influenced to be bigger than you are and to have an influence on that environment around you. And, and that whole you're talking about before some of those constructs, constructs, whether it's Keegan or you know, that idea about self-actualization, this ability to then think through navigating my relationships with other people, I actually can become a better version of myself. I can grow as a human by interacting with other humans. And that whole navigation process is just so fascinating. And some people based on their learned or maybe it's an inherited experience, they, they have some real courage around being able to interact with other people, whereas other people have some real fear about being able to in, uh, interact with other people as well. And I think then because of the way we work in this system is if you're fear-driven and you're uh, fearful of the environment and the world around you, I think that starts to limit your personal growth and your, actual, your ability to actualise. Whereas if you're in a system that is really supportive of you as a human, so you feel encouraged, um, given courage by the system, then that then opens you up to explore the world around you and to do so in a, in a way that is courageous and curious and you just start to then become a bigger and better human than, than you ever thought even possible. And I think collectively, given the collective intelligence that we're lucky to have in the environments that we live in, and I'm not saying that that happens around the world, uh, I think that this is why this complexity is starting to happen because collectively we're up for some of this stuff. We're up some, for some of the big challenges that are emerging. I love the term you use there around the system supporting us. And I immediately started thinking about the different types of systems that we interact with in our lives. So there's the family system, there's the workplace system, there's the social system. And you could move from system to system and some of those wouldn't be supportive and some of them would. So if you look at the work that you do in organisational development, I mean, people would attend something that you're facilitating and they'll go back into the system that potentially may not be encouraging and supporting them. Mm. Do you find that happens or that is something that happens in some organisations? 
And what I try to do, and definitely, and so what I try to do in those organisations, because even within organisations you have, say, departments or teams that are microsystems within a macro system. And then in terms of the other countries that I, that I work in as well, um, you might have an Australian-based organisation that then operates in another country. And so the system that operates in that country compared to the home base is a little bit different as well. Um, and so one of the things that I try to get the mirror out to hold people up for is this, I was, I was on a panel yesterday and someone asked the question, or they made the reflection that um, the use of uh, pronouns and the use of labels around high guys, they find it really offensive and that the system should do something about that. And my view to the person was, if someone found something that you said offensive, would, would you like to know about that straight away, uh, face to face, or would you like them to tell a group like this that, that they found it offensive, but not to let you know? She goes, oh, I'd, I'd love them to let me know. I said, well, why don't you go and let that person know? So you might learn, you might learn about personal pronouns on a workshop and, you know, or different language. And then you can sit back as an observer and a commentator or a narrator of the system and say, this is happening, this is happening. The courageous thing to do is to go out there and actually start to be the change and to influence the change you want in the system. So you know, if you're up for the challenge, to then go out and call people on some of the things that you find uh, offensive. But being able to, you know, a simple model like situation behaviour impact, talk about the impact that it's having on you. Um, label the behaviour, make sure they understand what it is that you're experiencing or that you're seeing call out the impact that it's having on you and then ask for something a little bit different. And those little one-on-one -on -one discussions can then start to really ramp up and change, change the system. And, and I think everyone's got that opportunity. Yeah, I agree. And I also am sitting here thinking from a different perspective, thinking, well, that person or those people who get upset by those pronouns, is it really something worth getting upset about? Like if I, I, I run workshops, like you run workshops and I use the term guys, Hey guys, that's just how I am. Right. It's just, but for someone to take offense from that, from my intention, my, it, is it the person who's taking offenses fault or is it my fault? Should I have to change everything so that I can appease everybody in a workshop? Mm. So it's, does the person who's hearing it need to have higher levels of self-awareness or does the person who's delivering it need to have higher higher levels of situational awareness you know where does it start where does it end it's a really complex right yeah and if it's if it's having an impact on the person that's hearing it then you can't guess you know that, it, that what you're saying is having an impact uh, a negative impact on that person it's up for them to be able to call it out mm. to be able to let you know and, and once you know that it's causing offense to that person you've then got a choice. You can then say, well, too bad, I'm going to stick with what I know. Or, wow, I didn't actually understand that that, that word was having um, that impact on you or perhaps others. And so now that I know, I've then got a choice to, uh, to alter my behaviour or to keep going based on what I now know anyway. Yeah. So it comes down to communication, having the courage and being brave of letting people know when things are offending you for whatever reason. And then if you're at the other end, getting that feedback to make that choice, whether you take that on board and change your behavior or whether you don't, you know, yeah. 
it's your it's your choice, isn't it? It's your choice. So, and it's interesting. I, I often tell people about a conversation I had with um with my youngest daughter, who's now twenty one. But um, there was a time where we just weren't seeing as much as each of each other as as we were, and I um that started to worry me. I was on the road a little bit, and 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 I said to uh, her, she was then sixteen. Um, how about we go and have a regular catch-up? You know, it's nearly like a performance review. How am I going as a dad? How are you going as a daughter? And we can give each other feedback. And it was kind of a bit weird, but we, we did it, you know. It killed, or it was better than just sitting in front of the TV or across from dinner, and it was quite purposeful and really enjoyable. But at one stage, um, I said to her, you know, how am I going as a dad, you know? And, uh, and she goes, oh, not too bad. And the not too bad wasn't quite as... You know, delicious as you get on that Father's Day card, you know, all those nice things that you that you hear. And I thought, oh, gee, what, what do you mean not too bad? What's up? And she goes, oh, I don't want to talk about it. Oh, well, that's a bit interesting. Oh, that's a, and, yeah, you know, I'm curious, so I'm really interested to know, well, just, just tell me, like, being your dad's important to me, tell me what's going on. And she goes, just drop it, Dad. Leave it alone. Don't worry about it. And the... The big part of me wanted to keep going, but the learned part of me said, right, no, time to shut up and just have a sip of my coffee, uh, which I did. And it felt like 10 minutes, but it was probably 30 seconds. And then she said, fine, I'll tell you. And uh, she then shared that it seems to me every time I bump into you, you've got a job for me to do. Like you've been storing up a big list of things to, you know, for me to to do and just for context um she has a floor drobe in her room she has a wardrobe but she prefers the floor drobe and that impacts on the environment around her and uh and so you know that's one of the jobs you know tidy your room or can you do the dishes or can you help back in the floor or can you unpack the dishwasher or whatever that might be and um so i just listened and she said in actual fact i actually walk home into the back door hoping that you're not going to be there and if I actually know that you're in the house and I can hear you, I actually walk straight down the passage to my room, hoping that you don't know that I'm home and hoping that I don't bump into you because you're going to give me a job to do. That really hurt to hear. But based on that information, similar to the pronouns, I've got a choice. I can either defend my position to be able to say, well, hang on, fair enough, you live in this house and you know, you've got to contribute as an adult to the to the you know, environment around you, or I can just kind of let that sit because it didn't sit too easy and, and let that sit around, wow, if that's what that's like for her. And, and of course, as a dad, I wanted to fix that there and then, but I just chose just to let it sit there and, and to say, well, if that's her experience, I can learn from that experience and just see what that feels like. And uh, I was going to go into some feedback from her about how she's going to uh, going as a daughter, but I decided not to in that moment. <laughs> and it's interesting, yeah, the next time we bump into each other might have been the day after or, or the next day, and she's walked into the kitchen and there I am and was kind of, <laughs> I had about eight jobs that I was ready to give her and uh, I just chose not to. But over a period of time, she actually then started to contribute more of the house, uh, you know, doing little jobs yeah, things, volunteering, I guess. And I actually started to be a little less hyper-vigilant on the things that she wasn't doing. And we started to express some appreciation uh, for each other and really changed that relationship. So I think to that example, um, she could have chose not to uh, tell me that that was impacting on her. Um, I could have chosen to defend 
my position, but I think we'd both sat there in unconscious awareness that, that the dynamic of our relationship was even more important. Mm. And rather than try and fix it, let's just call it out and, and you know, step into a position of knowing it. And that relationship is, is now, you know, stronger than it's ever been. And, you know, at one level I was, you know, extremely delighted that I have, you know, managed to uh, grow a small adult uh, to the point where she can actually call that out um, with someone in her system um, courageously because I think it takes courage to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And the way that you are able to, even though on the inside you're probably going, I want to defend this, <laughs> but then you don't. You stop, you pause and you you sit back and you just take it on and you, you, you wear it. You wear what she's given you and um, it comes back to the point around perspective because it's now given your perspective you didn't see. You, you couldn't see how, how she was viewing you as her father and that's a real gift to have that new perspective. And and I, had the, I, I was aware that we weren't seeing each other as much as we had been. And I'd put it down to the fact that I was travelling and she was busy at school. Or she whatever. was hiding from you. <laughs> she was hiding and I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, that's just such a, a really great story because if we think about how we are in, let's say, the workplace or our other relationships that we've got, we will find that when things aren't going right for us without having the courage to bring it up with another person, we will hide from people. We will avoid, we'll use avoidance instead of actually calling that out and having those conversations with people. And I think um, that story is a really good, a good example of how being brave and courageous to call out those things, not the necessarily the pronouns, but how people are affecting you in your day-to-day -day running of your, your life, so to speak, which is really about that level of complexity, isn't it? Yeah. And, and it's interesting you're talking about Keegan before as well, because um, the, the person that Keegan does a lot of work with, um, uh, Lisa Leahy. Leahy, yeah. Um, and um, they kind of talk about, you know, one, they talk about the immunity to change and about how systems kind of stop you fixing what it is because you can't see what it is that you're trying to fix. Um, but, but at one level, it's, it's actually then calling out some of the, the things that happen that are really starting to irk you and to get on your, get on your nerves a little bit. And, and for some people, they just call it out straight away. Yeah, you know, as soon as as soon as something happens in their system, they just even if it's a one-on-one -on -one relationship, oh, that was a bit ugly. I'm gonna I'm gonna call it out. Other people kind of put it off. You know, I, I might put it off for a little while, a couple of weeks, whatever, hoping that it will fix itself and I won't need to say anything. Other people then put it off even further and don't actually say anything for a year or even two years. And by then, the impact on the relationship or performance or whatever has really dropped away. And some people never do it. Mm. Yeah, they, they'll they'll wipe someone from their life because it's just too hard to actually bring that that uh, discussion to the fore. And especially when there's some ugly stuff going on that people don't want to talk about it. You know, it's easier just to move on, you know, to wipe someone. Yeah, um, what am I pretending not to know? Yeah, yeah not to know. Yeah, and I'll just get on with my with my life without that person kind of in my life. And that can be complex in organisations when that person might be your boss, as an example. Um, and or in a family when they might be a spouse or one of your one of your kids, uh, but but when I say to people in workshops around some of these things, you know, which person are you? Do you, you kind of call it out early, or do you kind of 
let it go. Most people fall into the middle ground between kind of a couple of weeks and a few months. They let it kind of go on for a bit. But when I flip that around and say, if that was you, when would you want that person to let you know that that was happening? They all say straight away. Without exception, they want to know straight away. Even if it's hard to hear, tell me. I'd rather know. And, and so I, I don't get the flip. If, I, if, it's, if it's me causing it, I want to know. But if it's someone else, I'm happy to put it off and hope for the best. I was going to ask whether you realised why that is, why people do it. And do you, have you got an answer? Have you found anything? Have you been curious? <laughs> well, it's just kind of awkward. You know, because we, we live in a, in a kind of funny thing. I, I, I talk about, you know, you might be talking to someone and uh, you know, you're talking at a function and you're a foot and a half away from each other and, and uh, you know, just a little bit of saliva comes out of your mouth and lands on the person's shirt or you know, perhaps it's a, a whole samosa you know, that, that comes out and bounces off their cheek. And um, we both see it, but no one says anything. Mm. And that whole thing fascinates me about why the hell wouldn't we say, hey, you know, stop chucking your lunch at me. <laughs> say um, it, don't spray it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know, some people don't don't even say it. Like same thing um, if you're talking to someone and you notice their mascara's run down their eye or they've got a bit of parsley in their teeth or something. Yeah, you're the kind of person that says uh, you just might want to check your your makeup or you might want to just you know, take that out of your teeth or do you just kind of move on hoping that they notice next time to go to the bathroom? Because yeah. if, if I it point it be, out straight away for people. Yeah. And because that's what I'd want, I'd want people to let me know. Yeah. And um, I'm going to save you some more embarrassment. If no one tells you, you might be talking to another five people that don't have the guts to say anything. I'm going to tell you, you've got a bit of broccoli in your teeth, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and if I'm talking to someone and they've got lipstick on their teeth, I say, you probably want to know you've got lipstick on your teeth. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, and I, I find what it you said there. And that's a really good way to frame it because I'm not sure why there are certain times. For me, like the bits and pieces like on their faces, I can tell someone instantaneously I'm okay with that. But there is this point where if someone's irking me or annoying me, I will wait that a while. I've got to, I don't know, get, get myself ready to tell them most of the time. But I love what you just said then. And this could be a framework that people could use is you probably want to know that. Yeah. Most people do want to know. You probably want to know that what you just said then um, actually impacted me this way and, or you probably want to know pain or yeah something. it caused me pain or whatever it might be you probably want to know that you've got a booger hanging from your nose right yep. you probably want to know these things i'm not saying you want to know i'm just guessing that you're probably somebody who um is really takes takes um care of a their appearance or b how they're affecting being a, how they're affecting other people so I think that might even be a little tool people could use is you probably want to know. Yeah, you probably want to know. I, and I would know. It's funny when you make some people aware, depending on what the situation is, some people can actually go into fight, flight and freeze when you, when you make them aware. And, and so some people can default to defending their position. Um, oh, sorry, I already knew that. I, I knew I had that hanging out of my nose in that Mustang. Um, and, and, and so Save that, it for later. <laughs> yeah, or they, you know. Um, some people point out to me you know, obvious things. Geez, you're going grey, really? I hadn't noticed. Like I get a little bit sarcastic, um, <laughs> but it's a. But for some reason, that that triggers that for people fight, flight, and freeze. But it gets a little bit tricky 
uh, uh, I guess in systems as well, especially when there's a language that starts to happen or a level of um, colloquialism or even some things in some systems are okay and some things aren't. For six years, I was the president of the local football club. And uh, in that environment, we did a couple of things as a club that were kind of locked into our normal way of doing things. Uh, Thursday nights, we had about 220 or so people for dinner. And you know, part of our kind of rhythm was that we had someone tell a joke. And sometimes those jokes were just a little bit NQR, um, using some language that, that you would say, well, that's footy club, so it, it's, it's okay. But it really wasn't. And then when we started to, um, we were one of the leaders around getting um, women's football up and going in the local competition, and we're now into our fourth year. When someone had said to me, you might just want to change the language of the jokes, we started to have families come not just footballers come for Thursday night dinners. You just might want to change that down. And when I started to bring that to other people's awareness, just watch the joke, you know, make sure, or can, I, can you vet the joke before you tell it? Um, people then started to take a bit of offence mm. uh, to that as well and, and kind of dismiss it. Um, nowadays, we don't even tell uh, the joke. Um, the local football club is built on uh, Indigenous land that's that's really important it's one of the most significant indigenous sites in australia and there's some pushback uh, around the indigenous rights and the indigenous importance uh, for indigenous people around that land and, and when you put that into the football club uh, environment into that kind of system there was some real i'm going to use the word disdain or some dismissiveness about the importance of that and calling that out when people were using inappropriate uh, language and, and responding in ways that just weren't okay um, really then started to test me as a leader because I was aware that whatever I just, in a group of people, didn't call out, I was signalling I was okay with. Mm. And that stuff becomes a real test of who you are because it not only reflects and becomes a part of the culture that's happening, people see it a part of, as a part of what I believe in as well. And I had to call out a couple of things, hey, that's not okay. And when you call it out, you get dismissed around that's not important. And then you have to have a reinforcement just to let you know that that language and that term or you know, that kind of response is not welcome here anymore. Yeah, so it's a real culture change that you had to do with the footy club. Significantly, yeah. 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 And one of the things that you mentioned there is around the the reinforcing of it so you say it once and people take it with a grain of salt a bit of disdain they push back on it they they actually start judging you not the message um but then over time if you're consistent with that they realize that it's serious and then do they start to change uh they do or interestingly some people fall away yeah which is good yeah <laughs> well they don't they don't kind of fit which is which at one level it's kind of good, but at one level it's kind of sad because you want all people to belong and to, and to fit in. But it's, if I put this into a corporate environment as an example, um, the equivalent might be around business planning or strategy. And I've been to many, many meetings when the person with the strongest voice or the, or the most valued opinion in the room was someone from the finance department. 
who held the businesses that I've run accountable for delivering the numbers. And if the if the if say the month's performance had been really strong or the you know, year was really strong, it was fantastic. And I used to say, hey, it's my fault, it's my leadership. That's why all the great performance is happening. But if it was a little bit poor and we were a little bit behind schedule, um, then uh, the finance person would kind of put a bit of heat in there and saying, well, you need to be able to deliver this and you need to be able to deliver that. And of course, it wasn't my fault when things weren't performing. <laughs> but, but the thing that was happening in the system is that everyone believed that the forecasting was exactly right across the whole year and that the most learned person in the room was someone from finance who wasn't actually responsible for delivering the goals that, um, or the business performance. They were just re responsible for keeping score. And no one in that system thought to say, perhaps the numbers are wrong. Perhaps we should be challenging the person from finance because if we're so far off hitting the numbers that we'd agreed on, perhaps the person who set the numbers in the first place is the person who got it wrong rather than all of us trying to do it. The converse is if, if we're so far ahead of system or so, and everyone in, in the room is above target, then perhaps the numbers were wrong as well. That perhaps we were limiting uh, our kind of, view about what was actually possible and, and so you know a, a lot of systems I put a fair bit of heat on who's got the loudest voice in the room what's okay when someone speaks um, everyone listens without challenging that and it gets really even more complex when the person doing that is the CEO or the leader of that department that they're so locked into their own opinion and their own perspective and everyone in the room outside of the room when they walk away saying I didn't agree with that at all yeah, but they, they don't say it in the room. They don't, don't say it in the room. They don't call it out because it's hard. Mm. Mm. It is hard, especially when they, it depends on the individual who's the leader um, and what the culture is in an organisation that if you call things out, do you get punished for it? Does the, you know, is there some form of punishment? Do you forego your bonus? You know, do you lose your job? Depending on the, depending on the organisation, there's a, there's a real, you know, risk of calling things out. Yeah, and, then, and this is where solipsism starts to play its ugly head because if the leader is solipsistic in their views so that they believe that they're the smartest person in the room, that the team exists just for them to deliver their own performance, that they are the centre of the whole universe around how this, how this works, it's really hard to get a counter view to that. And, and that leader, when charged up and challenged, would find ways to distance that person um, who is a contrary voice uh, from the system. Yeah. And, uh, there's a couple of examples in politics that you'll see around the planet at the moment where if, if you're not towing the company line, then you're, you're out. Whereas other people, other leaders have the courage to say, actually, I'm the kind of person who employs people in my team that are smarter than me. I'm a facilitator in my role. And what I want is diversity of thought. I want diversity of opinion. I want to put my views on the table, but I want them challenged so that collectively we come up with a much better view about what's possible and maybe a you know, better quality ideas and input than we would have if everyone in my team were just being compliant because I was the hierarchical leader in that system. So you find leaders like, like you're talking about, the ones that they're the centre of the universe, they would halt innovation because they're, all they're seeing the world is through their own point of view and if it's not their idea, it's not right. So they would probably halt, their, halt where they can go as an organisation and potentially drive their ship um, <laughs> off the edge of the world if we had a flat world. Um, yeah. 
at some point, not immediately, but at some point, I think that could potentially happen as well. Because you're not open to, you're not open to change anything new, um, hearing from a different voice. Uh, you're blocking opportunity. Mm, definitely, and I, and I say that a lot. I, ironically, the people that that don't want um, you know any outside kind of influence, they don't usually invite consultants like you and I into their business. We don't actually know who they exist. And as a consultant, you know, one of the best gifts I had from a former leader that I worked for really early on into her career, she came outside of our organisation, outside of kind of my role. And um, her first advice to me was that um, I really dislike people like you, Greg. Uh, Why is that? And she goes, because I can be experiencing something that's really complex and I've been trying to solve it in my business for a year, maybe two years. Maybe I've been trying to solve it in my career for a year, um, you know, 10 years. And you come in as a consultant and within 10 minutes you think you know how to fix it. She goes, I think it's a very arrogant view. And I carry that with me all of the time. So when someone's explaining to me something really complex, I give them my perspective, but I don't present it as what they should do or what they could do. I just kind of load it up as just well from where I sit this is kind of what I see does that help and and then that tends to get into conversation and then through partnership um, I'm normally invited back to then have that kind of level of discussion and creative kind of um, you know, discovery conversation as a facilitator with everyone else in the room and what actually usually happens in that role is that all of those views and that curiosity was existing in that team in the first place but they didn't have someone who could facilitate that discussion and make sure everyone could get heard. And, and kind of that's where I get to add most of my value, not by my, by what I know, but by, by my ability to actually get people to talk and to present their opinions and perspectives in a way that everyone hears it and can bounce and build off that. Yeah, beautiful. And I love that. I know um, when I frame workshops that I run, it's a similar thing. You know, I, even though I'm at the front of the room, I tell people, I don't know everything. The room is full of genius. Um, and I, you know, I love giving people permission that if they have something to add, you know, all ears, chuck it in, you know, we're all here. We actually learn more if everyone puts their two, two cents or whatever it is, probably more than that, if they put their knowledge on the table as well for all of us to gather from. And I think that's a really beautiful way of bringing together the shared knowledge that we have because there's only so much time we have uh, as human beings and so much knowledge we can gather and everyone's going to have a different perspective and different um, different pieces of value that they can bring to whether it's in a learning experience, a strategy session or a problem solving session, right? Um, so I think that's really wonderful. And I love that advice that you got, <laughs> although that word saying how arrogant of you coming in thinking you can solve something I've been working on for so long. I've got the answers. So again, it's about stepping back and offering, offering information, offering points of view that potentially they can't see. I, um, there's a really beautiful story that's in the beginning of uh, a book called U Squared, and it's about a fly. And what what's happening is the, the narrator, the author of the book, he's sitting in a hotel and he's watching this fly persistently try to get through the glass window, trying to get through it, just, you know, it's just trying harder and harder. And we've all seen it, haven't we? We've all seen these flies trying to get through windows. Why well, is that great resilience, don't they? <laughs> they just keep going, they keep going. And the author, he's writing this story and he says, but 
you know, he's, he's going to keep trying until he dies, basically. The, the fly, because we see all these dead flies on the windowsill. Mm. The fly's not aware, but what the author can see from a different point of view, from a different perspective, the author can see that there's a door 10 seconds flying um, time away that is open that could let the fly get into the goal that it wants, which is to get outside. Mm. So when you think about that from a point of view of perspective, having a consultant, having a coach, having a mentor, having a facilitator, somebody that has a different perspective while you're sitting there banging your head on the glass like the fly, you're going to end up not getting where you want because you're doing the same thing mm. coming from a conditioned mindset that is yours and yours alone, your own perspective. You think it's the right way, but if you've got somebody from a different perspective, they can point out those open doors. They can point out those opportunities that you can't see. And that only happens when you're open to it as well. So I think what you're saying here is absolutely, you can go in, um, you go in as a consultant and you're offering the narrator's point of view. Here you go. I see an open door if you like. All you have to do is change direction and you give them that opportunity. I run a workshop in uh, New Zealand once and a bird flew into the room. It was on a farm and with the big open doors and the air conditioner wasn't working and the doors were open and this bird flew in and then proceeded to get quite nervous and try to get out of the room and was banging into windows and similar to your fly. And then a, a very learned uh, person in the room got up, said, just let's calm down for a second, closed all of the blinds, turned off the lights and the bird flew straight out the open door and just show me the pathway. And, and you know, often it's just a, let's just, disrupt what's actually happening call things to a halt if a meeting's going poorly stop you know let's turn the lights off and let's see what is the problem we're trying to solve here let's just kind of reset stand up do something a little bit different and quite often that disruption is is the biggest thing you mentioned innovation there before as well and one of the biggest threats to innovation is to keep trying to kind of look at a new problem to solve, but using the tools and the existing frameworks that we've been using in the business forever. And um, yeah, the, the biggest thing, or the biggest threat to innovation that I see is this, this homogeneity that starts to happen in teams, that everyone starts to think the same, that, that everyone's difference of opinion then starts to have uh, the same flavour and kind of gets diluted because we're all talking about the same thing in the same way. And leadership has a role on that as well. And it's often the little quiet voice in the corner. There's someone that we haven't heard from for a second that we can just throw to that person and out of nowhere, they just chuck something into the room, just a comment, a discussion. I don't know what I'm, why I'm thinking about this, but I, I reckon we should do this or we haven't even thought about this. That little circuit breaker can lead that whole team on to... Um, yeah, a whole new pathway that they had not even considered. And it's just so important. Yeah, I love that. And I love what you said there too about the, it's almost like the, are you aware of the the flow cycle? Uh, it's sort of come out of the flow genome project. So they have the struggle. So the struggle is we're all here. We're all trying to brainstorm something. We're trying to come up with something and it's just not working. And then the next phase is what they call the release phase, which is, Let's let go of the struggle. Let's go, let's just go and do something different. And then when you release, you're getting out of your own way, basically. And then you drop into flow or the zone. 
um, and then afterwards you obviously need to recover. So that's the cycle and that's the cycle of innovation in a way as well. We, we have the struggle, we have the brainstorming, but then if you could just stop, release it, surrender, get out, do something different, um, it allows from a from a science perspective within the brain, it allows the brain to actually get all the information you've been talking and come up with disparate ideas and, mm. and um, sorry, create ideas from disparate information that you've been talking about. And that's like the little person in the corner of the room who's been watching you all struggle is sitting there just putting it all together and goes, well, what about this? Mm. Um, we need to be able to have that, that opportunity to release so that we can get into that that optimal performance as a team, but also uh, as individuals as well. And it's fascinating around that as well. Like, so you'll see people who spend their whole life at a desk. I've run workshops recently where people sit on the same floor in the same building and they have never met each other. And, um, and yeah, you know, the first chance I've ever had to actually talk to people is to come on this workshop. And, one of the things that can happen in that is if I'm so locked into problem solving and I'm whacking away at my computer and I'm trying to think through things and my brain's kind of feel a bit stuck, the, one of the best things you can do is to get up and just go and have a coffee with someone or just go and say to them, can I grab you for five seconds and kind of replay what it is that you're trying to do and just get their uninformed perspective and get them to ask you a question of, can you play back to me what, what you just heard? And it'll just release some kind of insight that you hadn't even thought of before. I love when that happens and you walk into someone's office and you'll say, oh, can I just have a chat to you? I want to do this and I want to do that and I'm trying to do this and I'm doing this and, and this isn't happening so I'd really like to do this and, oh, yeah, I know exactly what I need to do. Hey, thanks, that's been really helpful. <laughs> and the person hasn't even said anything apart from getting really the and, Yeah, <laughs> happens quite a lot, doesn't it? It's just a matter of getting it, verbalising it because the verbalise gives it a little bit more structure and you can start to put things together from a, yeah, from a neurological point of view. So. Yeah. Amazing stuff. Hey, there was something we, we spoke about off air before we started that I really want to delve down. And this, because this excites me, this really excites me. And this is around um, your, your approach to anti-goal setting. Mm. Anti-goal setting. And I love this. So can you, can you share what, what you mean by that? So why, why this, approach to not setting goals or changing the way we set goals yeah well, so I've, I was kind of always been a I'm a bit of an intention setter not really a goal setter uh, I had a great question on a panel I was talking on last uh, yesterday about um, recruitment and about whether to get the gender mix right in leadership pathways we need to have a quota and and I'm kind of the other three people on the panel were, yeah, we probably need to have a quota and otherwise it's not going to happen. And I'm like, well, I'm going to disagree. I don't reckon we need a quota. I've worked in quota systems before and I don't think they kind of work because the quota predetermines it. That's a goal. And most quotas don't actually have a date on them anyway. So it's a false, it's a false goal. Um, whereas I think, yeah, you can put a number on it. You can measure it. And, and what gets measured kind of gets done anyway. So, you know, putting a number on it is, is important. But I've been reading some stuff that is confusing me a bit. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm glad I'm confused as I'm walking around. I, I'm reminded of the energy of your seven-year-old self that we were talking about earlier. In that, this view that similar to a finance department that will set the financial performance 
um, expectations for a business 12 months out or even three years out uh, around, yeah, these are the markets we want to play in and this is the profitability we want to deliver and this is the sales volumes that we want to achieve. Um, and then the whole system then orientates towards achieving exactly that. All of the KPI, KPIs or the KRAs for the system, the job description documents, the, the personnel are all aligned to achieving that goal that was set on uh, today for the next 12 months. And well, what if something emerges from the system or an opportunity emerges from the system tomorrow that we weren't of, aware of today? That you've kind of locked into this path and this system and you've locked it in concrete around achieving your goals. One part of me says that you won't even see the opportunity because it's not on your mm. to-do list. And this is often the difference between um, the energy in a startup compared, the in a, compared to the energy in an established uh, business. You know, the established business is so locked into a current way of thinking that they, they can't turn in a, in a really quick way. And you'll see corporate saying, oh, we're doing agile. Well, good luck doing agile because you're, you're, um, you're dancing really quickly on a massive big oil tanker that's not going to shift no matter how quickly the people are shifting on the system. And, and so this goal setting then says, uh, if you set a goal for doing this by this date, by doing this, uh, uh, and in this time and in this way, the system, I think, is more dynamic than your brain can even imagine. And if you lock yourself into just kind of doing that, um, you will um, set up internally, either consciously or unconsciously, all of these things that will orientate you towards achieving that goal. And you have this other thing called an ego that wants you to achieve exactly what it is that you set out, uh, set out to do. And um, I can just see, and I kind of haven't figured it out yet, I can just see how, hey, there's pluses for that. You know, around I want to have you know, X amount of dollars in my savings account by you know, this date, or I want to visit these amount of countries, or I want to win this amount of work. Um, but hey, there's pluses for kind of having that intention, but there's also limitations around being too set around what it is that that goal can, um, yeah, can actually start to envisage uh, for you as well. Um, your future self knows. And if I, went, if I went in a time machine and whispered to my own seven-year-old self about what would you like to achieve by the time you're 53, future mm -hmm. Greg, I, I would never have been able to imagine what it is that I'm currently doing now. No. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I love I love that whole premise of of anti goals, but I'm not actually anti goal. So, mm. I I'm of the belief that we we need to have something to aim for and something to aspire towards. But I think there's a, a balancing act or a a bit of a tango we play with with the goal and what's happening around us. So, still being aware of what's happening in the world around us and what's changing, but also understanding that when we say as an individual as an individual we set our goals based on our current knowing our current knowing and our current belief systems and our what we believe we're capable of doing now mm -hmm. but as we start to progress and take the first step we start to grow sometimes some of the layers and the old beliefs that don't serve us fall away and then all of a sudden we can open ourselves up to something greater or you see something, you've been curious, and you see something that's now a little bit different to what you wanted. An example, I had a, a, an amazing client I was coaching and she started with me. We, we start off with what's your end goals, what's your intention for having a coach? Because obviously you want something. And 
she wanted to become one of the, the, the best real estate agents, the highest, you know, the best female real estate agents in Australia. That was her goal, massive goal. That was where she was heading for. But as we start going through the coaching process and start understanding more about her and what she really wants and start taking away the layers of beliefs and ego that doesn't serve her, you know, she comes to me halfway through the coaching and says, look, I haven't really told you this. And I had actually thought of it for myself, but that goal I set, I don't really want. What Mm. I do want is, and she gets out her phone and she shows me, she goes, I'm an artist. And she shows me this beautiful artwork she's been doing. She goes, I want to monetize and actually spend more time on my art. I actually don't care about being the best real estate agent. I've just been told all my life that I couldn't do this, but I actually want to do it. So yes, I like the idea of goals, but I like the idea of really paying attention from a corporate level or an individual level of what's going on around you and what's shifting and changing within, within the organism, whether it's the, the group or the individual. Because as culture changes, your goals will change as well. And as the world changes, technology changes, you've got to be ready to adapt. So it's not don't set goals, have something, but also be keep your eye out for what's happening and be ready to say that's not going to serve us anymore. Mm. And I wonder if there's a deeper, and I don't have this answer, I wonder if there's a deeper sort of drawing, whether it be value, something that we value as an organisation or some form of deeper purpose that aligns the goals, that allows you to shift fast. So if, you know, if I'm a huge organisation, got this great big ship where we're in, but we've got a, a purpose to deliver some form of service or product that if we have a really strong purpose, we can shift our goals to make sure they're still aligned to our purpose. Well, and perhaps it's even coming back from that as well. So rather than setting, because a lot of businesses set financial goals, you know, we want to come up with a new product or a new way of doing things so that we can achieve this financial, this return on shareholders or, you know, this level of income, whatever that might be, this level of savings. And perhaps we bring that back. And so we, we then start to say to people, how would you need to behave in order to achieve this better version of yourself? And And so... Let's bring that back to the behavioural expectation of self for today and let's just start behaving like that and see where we end up. Mm. Um, if, uh, give an example about how that is. Um, about, uh, it must be about 30 weeks ago now, I made a decision finally that I was going to do something about my health and fitness and about and so start to go to the local f45 now the the idea of gym just doesn't kind of turn me on too much it doesn't really push my buttons it sounds like hard work i haven't been fit since i was about 15 i reckon and uh, even though i've been able to fake it and so the idea of then setting a goal and saying because when i started set goals i was like i could probably drop five kilos and I didn't want to set it too big because I didn't want to let myself down. You know, my ego's kind of involved. Mm-hmm. It's set five, um, drop five kilos or, you know, I might be able to run 5K without um, without a stop or whatever that might be. And But when I actually then started to get back to, and the, the, the personal trainer um, who looks after me, at least two of them at that gym, then said to me, well, kind of how do you want to be able to achieve that? What would you be up for? And I kind of said, look, ah. Oh, I'm pretty busy, you know, maybe I'll go to the gym. I could probably do two sessions a week 
What I didn't know back then when I started to set these goals is that current Greg loves going to the gym. And um, five kilos is about 10 kilos ago. And uh, I now go to the gym six days a week. I have Sundays off. And some days I go twice a week. And if I don't go because I'm probably on an assignment, I really miss it. Um, and my one of the things I did, didn't kind of set was a, I didn't set a resting heart rate. You know, someone in finance might have helped me set a resting heart rate goal. I was sitting there the other day with my heart monitor on and my resting heart rate was 53. And that a 53 resting heart rate would have been completely unimaginable for me 20 or 30 weeks ago. And so all I did was I set the intention to kind of head off and see what I could discover. And my performance, my energy, my happiness, my, the, the clarity of thought that I have, the, the energy that I bring to the relationships I have with other people, how I feel is beyond what I could have ever imagined. Um, and so, and, and, and I didn't even... I didn't even, I don't, in hindsight, I couldn't even write the book about how did I, how did I do that? I just set off to see what I could set off. I opened up to the thought that perhaps let's just see what happens. You experimented with going to the gym. Yeah. You got I love it, Georgia. I can't believe it. Yeah. I know. Because the old Greg wouldn't have, right? No, he would have hated it. Yeah. And, and, and would, have, would never have set an expectation to lose I think it's now about 18 kilos um, because that just seems impossible. Um, but, hey, now I'm thinking, oh, perhaps I could get it to 25. And um, and people keep coming to me saying, oh, you're disappearing slowly. And I'm like, yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> so I love question it. for you. What was your initial intention for going to the gym? What made you go? Well, it's interesting. My wife, Sharon, has been going for a fair bit longer than I have. And she's always been encouraging me to come along. And uh, no, nah, that didn't work. And uh, it was actually when uh, River, my third grandchild, arrived. And I then started to imagine how's it going to be trying to enjoy my grandkids if I'm um, at my level of fitness that I was um, then. And I, I wanted to... I want to be on the planet a bit longer and I want to be able to enjoy um, uh, those kids. And I could tell that the pattern I was in and what I was eating wasn't uh, working uh, for me. Um, yeah. My brother-in-law also had a heart attack at 48 and that scared all of us. And I didn't do it immediately after that, but it was on my mind yeah. uh, around things. And so I think I just come up with a reason yeah, you know, there's a song that talks about if only my enemy was bigger than my apathy. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, it, uh, my goal then become an emotional one rather than, um, yeah, than a numeric one. Yeah, and that's the, that's the thing. That's the biggest driver is we've got to get emotionally involved with what it is. And most of the time we don't set ourselves goals that haven't. We do things because we should do them, not because we've got this deep wanting and desire, this emotional desire for it. And, yeah, and I could, we could sit here and have a whole conversation around what's actually going on psychologically when we, when we do that. But setting, having at least um, something to move towards because it changed you. You're now a different Greek. It's the, the journey you've been on, you're different and you probably wouldn't 
ever want to go back to being the old Greg. And and it's funny how that then changes as well. I'm just looking at that lyric. So Mumford and Son, I gave you all is that song. So it's nice to uh, nice to kind of acknowledge them for yeah, thank you that lyric that loops around in me. But it, but it's interesting. Uh, I, I had a friend who said, um, oh, "Can you come and talk to this corporate? They've got a job you'd be fantastic at." And uh, I went and talked to them, and I said, "Oh, geez, something to think about. I would really love this job." He said, well, "Just think about it for a couple of days and come back to me." And I. I ran this guy back and I said, oh, I would love this job. It's kind of a job that I'd, I've always kind of wanted and I'd throw my life at it, you know, I'd really pull it apart and, you know, we'd work really well together and that's why I can't take it because I've already done that and uh, I, you know, I, don't, I don't want a job anymore. I'm, uh, I'm a different person. The Greg, before I went into my own business seven or so years ago, would have jumped at that job. Yeah. My ego would have felt fantastic because I've been offered it. Um, but yeah, you get into a different position. You want to achieve different things. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Especially when you, you get out there and as you can, I think as you start to experience growth and see how you can become a different person, it becomes a little bit addictive because you don't want the same old anymore. You actually want more, you want more variety and you, you become really curious about life and you see so much awe and fascination just in the simple, simple thing of being right. And sometimes going back to the old, the, the old us isn't going to, it's not going to float our boats anymore. It's not going to fill us up like it once yeah. would have. Yeah. And that's part of the progression of, of growing as human beings. Yeah. And just that, that whole journey thing that we do. I was in Europe in, um, on holidays back in uh, January and um, I got a bit crook, so I didn't go out. But then when I finally got back onto the world list, we would go out and we were there with my brother-in-law and his wife and my wife and I, and um, well, they would put in, in Google Maps, you know, from where we were back to the hotel. And Mark would then set off, right, let's go this way. This And I said, ah, no, let's go that way, like completely the opposite direction. And uh, he reflected afterwards that, um, uh, yeah, that touring Paris was a lot more fun with me because we saw things that they would never have seen. Because it's not about getting back to your hotel as quick as you can. It's about immersing yourself in the things around you and just having a bit of a look around. I, I think your seven-year-old self is very wise in that initial uh, kind of context that you put, us, put uh, into us today. Mm. So I want to thank you for your time. We could sit and chat. I've got a list of things that we could chat about, but we're not going to. So thank you so much for jumping on. I've wanted to have you on here for a very long time. And also to, to acknowledge the work that you're doing, not only on yourself, but in, in organisations. And um, you're very influential when we work together in an organisation in my own development. So that was a big thank you for that. Um, so as we finish off, is there anything, any sort of final words of, I'm going to use the term advice, but anything, any sort of signposts or anything you'd like to leave our listeners with that potentially may help them um, as they move forward and as they, you know, become a better human, whatever that means for them. Um, I think it falls back to that thing that I did with my daughter. If there's something in a relationship that you know is not quite where it needs to be, uh, or there's something in your life that's just not kind of humming the way it needs to hum, uh, and there's people contributing to that. Just have the guts to be able to sit down and have a chat about it with someone. And you know, if you if you want to be happier, if you want to be, you know, want to stop hiding from someone you haven't seen for a while, you know, set the intention to go and sit down with them and just have a chat. And not to fix it, but just to find out what, what's going on. Just to 
and, and have the courage in there not to try and answer it, just to sit in the confusion and see where it kind of works out. And um, yeah, not every conversation like that can, can fix everything, but geez, each one of them could. So um, I reckon to kind of do, to do that. And hey, if it's a worthwhile conversation and it's something chunky and meaningful, then you're going to feel nervous about it. Um, perhaps reach out to a coach, maybe uh, <laughs> help you do that. Give George a call. Um, but uh, yeah, but I just have it. You know, life's too short to kind of go on that journey and carry that stuff around your backpack. Yeah, beautiful. So sit with the confusion. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. beautiful. Thank you so much, Greg. And if people want to reach out to you, is there a way they can contact you, uh, social media, LinkedIn? Um, so any, the best way to get in contact with you would be? Yeah, LinkedIn's probably the go. And uh, you and I are connected on LinkedIn. So if you go to your LinkedIn profile, look at your contacts, uh, you'll be able to find Greg Collier on there. Yeah, beautiful. Wonderful. So thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. We went down some uh, wonderful rabbit holes together. I really enjoyed that. So thank you so much and all the best. And thanks for listening, everyone. Cheers. Today is turning into the most curious adventure I've ever had.